Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is called Make Way for Milk Strippings. Milk strippings is not a phrase you hear every day, unless, of course, you happen to be a member of the LDS Church. In the LDS Church, all you have to do is say the words milk strippings, and it conjures up an entire story. We're going to go into that story a little bit tonight, talking about the basis for it, the history of it, and also the messages that are encoded in that story, messages that members of the church are supposed to understand whenever that story is told. And believe me, the story about the milk strippings is told a lot. If you Google milk strippings, at least when I did this morning before beginning this podcast, I found out that the very first page, every single reference except one, has to do with the LDS Church story of milk strippings. We hear it in conference, we hear it in talks and sacrament meeting, it is in the lesson manuals. So anybody who's been a member of the LDS Church for at least three years has heard the story about the milk strippings at least once and knows exactly what it is I'm talking about. A little bit more detail. The general story about the milk strippings is, it is a story of how Thomas B. Marsh left the LDS Church. Now, Thomas B. Marsh was not just any member of the church. He was a leader in the church. In fact, he was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles that was created in 1835. He was an original member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. When the Twelve Apostles were originally called, seniority was assigned by the age of the respective members, and Thomas B. Marsh, being the oldest of the Twelve members, became the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The incident involving milk strippings is dated to September of 1838. This was a critical time in Mormon history. It was when all the Mormons were now in Missouri. The Kirtland Bank had failed in 1837. Thomas B. Marsh had stood by Joseph Smith through that debacle when many members left the church. And after that, the saints, including Joseph Smith, abandoned Kirtland. They all gathered in Missouri. To give you an idea of what was happening in September of 1838, all you have to know is that it was the following month, in October of 1838, that Joseph Smith was arrested, others were arrested, the saints were driven out of Missouri, or at least that process was begun, which occurred during the winter of 1838 and 1839. But the first time the story about the milk strippings is told is not in 1838. It's not in 1839. It's not in 1840. In fact, it's not until 18 years later in 1856, when the LDS Church is now in Utah, that an apostle named George A. Smith tells this story in General Conference. On April 6, 1856, George A. Smith is giving a rather long talk in General Conference, and part of that talk involves the story of the milk strippings. Anytime that story is told since then, it is going back to this as its source. It is important to note that George A. Smith does not appear to have been in a position to have personally observed any of the incidents that would have occurred during the story that he's talking about. So this is my way of saying that it might be wise to take this story with a grain of salt. George A. Smith was called as an apostle six months later, after Thomas B. Marsh had left the church and been excommunicated in October of 1838. But that position had remained vacant for half a year, and George A. Smith was called 
to fill the vacancy. What actually happened in 1838, September and October of 1838, the Mormons were certainly being persecuted by the Missourians. There was the extermination order signed by Governor Boggs. We all know about that. We're taught about that frequently in the church. What we don't talk about so much in the church is the fact that the Mormons were not simply the ones who kept getting beat up on, beat up on, beat up on, and never retaliating because, in fact, they did retaliate, and sometimes in ways that some members of the church were not comfortable with, and one of those members was Thomas B. Marsh. On October 24, 1838, Thomas B. Marsh signed an affidavit which was used in order to arrest Joseph Smith, and in his affidavit, he explained that the reason he left was because he was alarmed that his fellow co-religionists, i.e. the Mormons, had formed mobs. Yes, we're talking about the Mormons here. The Mormons had formed mobs, expelled all the non-Mormons from Davies County, stolen their property. That's the Mormons stealing the non-Mormons' property. And Mormons burning their homes and towns to the ground. This is the reason that Thomas B. Marsh himself leaves in an affidavit that is contemporaneously recorded and preserved to this day as to why it was he left the church. This affidavit was also signed by Orson Hyde, himself a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. But not long after he signed this affidavit and the Mormons were expelled, he came back to the church, was reinstated in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, was sent to Jerusalem to dedicate the land for the return of the Jews, we all know that story about Orson Hyde. What we don't usually talk about in the church, by which I mean never, is the fact that he signed this affidavit along with Thomas B. Marsh. So it's understandable why it is that the Mormons were very upset with Thomas B. Marsh. It's very understandable why they considered his signing this affidavit an act of treason against Joseph Smith and against the restored gospel and against the Mormons. And this may be one of the reasons why it was felt important 18 years later, to come up with an alternate explanation as to why it was that Thomas B. Marsh left the church. It was no longer going to be what he said was his reason, because he was alarmed about the Mormon depredations on the non-Mormons in Missouri. The reason was going to be a story which made him sound absolutely ridiculous. It was a story about something as small and inconsequential as milk strippings. Here's the story, which I'm going to read rather quickly since everybody's so familiar with it, but these are the words of George A. Smith from his conference address, April 6, 1856, in Utah. Going from the middle of his talk, because that's where it is, it's in the middle of his talk, he talks about some things leading up to it, he talks about some things leading out. Here are his words. You may think that these small matters amount to but little, but sometimes it happens that out of a small matter grows something exceedingly great. For instance, while the saints were living in far west, there were two sisters wishing to make cheese, and neither of them possessing the requisite number of cows, they agreed to exchange milk. Sound familiar so far? Going on. The wife of Thomas B. Marsh, by the way, whose name was Elizabeth, the wife of Thomas B. Marsh, who was then president of the Twelve Apostles, and Sister Harris, that's Lucinda Harris, and Sister Harris concluded they would exchange milk in order to make a little larger cheese than they otherwise could. To be sure to have justice done, it was agreed that they should not save the strippings, but that the milk and strippings should all go together. Small matters to talk about here, to be sure, two women's exchanging milk to make cheese. Mrs. Harris, it appeared, was faithful to the agreement and carried to Mrs. Marsh the milk and strippings. But Mrs. Marsh, wishing to make some extra good cheese 
saved a pint of strippings from each cow and sent Mrs. Harris the milk without the strippings. Dun-dun-dun. Finally, it leaked out that Mrs. Marsh had saved strippings, and it became a matter to be settled by the teachers. They began to examine the matter, and it was proved that Mrs. Marsh had saved the strippings and consequently had wronged Mrs. Harris out of that amount. An appeal was taken. See, this is a very serious issue. It's only September of 1838. The Mormons are about to get run out of Missouri. But this is what everybody's focus appears to be on, at least according to this story. This is the big thing happening among the Mormon community in Missouri in September of 1838. An appeal was taken from the teacher to the bishop, and a regular church trial was had. President Marsh did not consider that the bishop had done him and his lady, his wife, justice. For they decided that the strippings were wrongfully saved and that the woman had violated her covenant. Marsh immediately took an appeal to the high council, who investigated the question with much patience. By the way, focus on this, that Marsh immediately took an appeal to the high council. This is what George A. Smith says 18 years after the fact. If I do the math correctly, George A. Smith was 20 years old in 1838 when this is alleged to have happened. Marsh immediately took an appeal to the High Council, who investigated the question with much patience, and I assure you they were a grave body. Let me just jump to the punchline on this one, okay? The fact is, is that the High Council minutes for the relevant time period from Missouri have survived, are available for review and inspection, and guess what? There is no reference whatsoever in the High Council minutes to any kind of appeal relating to this issue regarding milk strippings. Going on, Marsh immediately took an appeal to the High Council, who investigated the question with much patience, and I assure you they were a grave body, even though apparently they made no notes at all about this appeal. Marsh, being extremely anxious to maintain the character of his wife, and notice George A. Smith almost says it like it's a bad thing, that a husband would want to maintain the character of his wife. Marsh, being extremely anxious to maintain the character of his wife, as he was the president of the Twelve Apostles and a great man in Israel, made a desperate defense, but the High Council finally confirmed the bishop's decision. Marsh, not being satisfied, took an appeal to the first presidency of the church. Remember, this is all over milk strippings. Marsh, not being satisfied, took an appeal to the first presidency of the church and Joseph and his counselors had to sit upon the case, and they approved the decision of the high council. This little affair, you will observe, kicked up a considerable breeze, and Thomas B. Marsh then declared that he would sustain the character of his wife, even if he had to go to hell for it. The then president of the Twelve Apostles, the man who should have been the first to do justice and cause reparation to be made for wrong, committed by any member of his family, took that position. And what next? He went before a magistrate and swore that the Mormons were hostile towards the state of Missouri. It's interesting that George A. Smith doesn't actually deny the truth of the affidavit, but he simply states the affidavit. And notice now, this is what this is all leading up to. The affidavit that Thomas B. Marsh signed, and a way to make it sound ridiculous for him to do so, as if the real reason he signed an affidavit saying that the Mormons were hostile toward the state of Missouri is simply because he was upset about the milk strippings fiasco. Going on with the quote, that affidavit brought from the government of Missouri an exterminating order which drove some 15,000 saints from their homes and habitations and some thousands perished through suffering, the exposure, 
consequent on this state of affairs. He finishes with this question. Do you understand what trouble was consequent to the dispute about a pint of strippings? So that's the end of the quote from George A. Smith, the quote that gets repeated over and over and over again in Mormonism up to the present day. But as I said, this story is best taken with a grain of salt because there are a number of questions as to whether it is true in all its facts, whether it's true maybe in some of its facts, or whether it's just totally apocryphal. First off, as I said before, note that it comes late in time, some 18 years later. It is related by a person, George A. Smith, who was not a member of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time of the incident in question, not being ordained for another six months to fill the vacancy. What is his basis of knowledge of these things? Even if he had been a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, it wouldn't have given him necessary knowledge because when he talks about the appeal, he says it went from the teachers to the bishop to the high council to the first presidency. It never went to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and frankly, the way the church was organized at that time, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles would not have been involved because they had no authority over areas in which stakes of the church were organized, according to the Doctrine and Covenants. Their only authority was in the mission field where there were no stakes organized. So it makes sense that the Quorum of the Twelve would not have been involved in that appeal process. But the one thing that George A. Smith is clear about is that it did go through the High Council, and yet, as noted before, we have the contemporary minutes of the High Council at Far West, and there is no mention of any such case. The fact that Thomas Marsh explained his motives in a contemporary affidavit that survives gives his original account more credibility than Smith's later reminiscence. And there I'm quoting from John Hamer, a well-regarded historian of Mormonism. What are the reasons Thomas B. Marsh himself gave for his disaffection? He left them in his affidavit, which we've already quoted from. Which leaves us with the question, why is it that the church tells over and over again this story about milk strippings, when it is a story that is first told 18 years after the alleged incident? And why is it that the LDS church never goes into the reasons that Thomas B. Marsh himself gave in his contemporary affidavit for why it is that he left the church. Could it be because the reasons Thomas B. Marsh gave put the LDS church in a bad light? And could it be because the story told by George A. Smith puts Thomas B. Marsh in a bad light? As I said, George A. Smith first tells this story in 1856. The end of the story of Thomas B. Marsh and the Mormons comes one year later in 1857. In 1857, Thomas B. Marsh, now infirm, old, alone, and destitute, made his way across the plains to be reunited with his former fellow apostles and co-religionists. Here's what happened. Brigham Young invited Thomas B. Marsh to address a large congregation in the Salt Lake City Bowery gathered on September 6, 1857, where Thomas B. Marsh made an earnest plea to be forgiven and accepted as a member of the LDS Church. He himself ascribed his apostasy to his own hubris, jealousy, wrath, and hypocrisy. And this is what Marsh asked of his fellow saints in his own words. I want your fellowship. I want your God to be my God. And I want to live with you forever in time and eternity. I never want to forsake the people of God anymore. I want to have your confidence, and I want to be one in the house of God. I have learned to understand what David said when he exclaimed, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I have not come here to seek for any office, except it be 
to be a doorkeeper or a deacon. No, I am neither worthy nor fit, but I want a place among you as a humble servant of the Lord. That's the end of his quote. Sometimes in church, though rarely, we might hear this quote mentioned, where Thomas B. Marsh comes back and asks to be rejoined with the saints. What we never hear in church, however, is Brigham Young's response, which he gave after the congregation voted to allow Marsh to be baptized. Brigham Young then offered this assessment of Thomas B. Marsh, his predecessor as president of the Quorum of the Twelve. These are Brigham Young's words. I presume that Brother Marsh will take no offense if I talk a little about him. We have manifested our feelings towards him, and we know his situation. With regard to this church's being reconciled to him, I can say that this church and people were never dissatisfied with him. For when men and women apostatize and go from us, we have nothing to do with them. If they do that which is evil, they will suffer for it. Brother Marsh has suffered. Going on with a quote from Brigham Young. He has told you that he is an old man. Do you think that I am an old man? I could prove to this congregation that I am young, for I could find more girls who would choose me for a husband than can any of the young men. I'm not making this up. This is what Brigham Young said. Going on. Brother Thomas considers himself very aged and infirm, and you can see that he is, brethren and sisters. What is the cause of it? He left the gospel of salvation. What do you think the difference is between his age and mine? One year and seven months to a day. And he is one year, seven months, and fourteen days older than Brother Heber C. Kimball. Mormonism keeps men and women young and handsome. And when they are full of the Spirit of God, they are none of them. But what will have a glow upon their countenances? And that is what makes you and me young, for the Spirit of God is with us and within us. When Brother Thomas thought of returning to the church, the plurality of wives troubled him a good deal. Look at him. Do you think it need to? I do not, for I doubt whether he could get one wife. Why it should have troubled an infirm old man like him is not for me to say. So that was Brigham Young's gracious welcome back to the fold to the former president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Thomas B. Marsh. Marsh did rejoin the faith. He died a pauper in Ogden nine years later. A number of lessons are taught by this story. Any time a story gets repeated as often as this story gets repeated in the LDS Church, there is a reason behind it. There is a message that the Church wants its members to hear over and over again. The first lesson that is conveyed by this story is that the Church is more important than your family. Let me tell you a story about what happened in Gospel Doctrine class a few years ago where I was present in the classroom. Teacher was teaching from the manual. The subject was apostasy, and sure as the sunrise, out for Exhibit 1 came the story of Thomas B. Marsh's wife getting into a dispute with Sister Harris over milk strippings, and how Thomas B. Marsh became disaffected to the point that he testified against Joseph Smith in Missouri hearings in 1838. President Hinckley was quoted to the effect that the milk strippings incident and Marsh's reaction to it in some part led to the saints being driven from Missouri in the winter of 1838-39. Now here I want to give credit to President Hinckley because at least he modifies George A. Smith's tone. George A. Smith's tone from his story, the original story, the only story, suggests that this was the whole reason that Thomas B. Marr signed the affidavit. President Hinckley, as I say, modifies it a little bit to say that Marsh's reaction to the milk strippings incident led in some part 
to the Saints being driven from Missouri in the winter of 1838-39. To the teacher's credit in the class, she did say that this was not the only thing that Marsh had trouble with and that there were other, unspecified, events that led to his disaffection. This incident was fitted within the general rubric of the lesson manual on how being prideful can lead to individual apostasy. After the story was over, I raised my hand. I said that this story comes up like clockwork in the church for this proposition about how being prideful can lead to individual apostasy. But I said that I think there is a more important point that usually gets glossed over. That point being the difficult position Marsh was put in by the circumstances. And raising the question, as I did, of what do we do when our loyalties are divided between a family member such as a spouse, and a church administrator. One class member responded saying that nothing excused Marsh testifying against Joseph Smith. I said that jumping ahead to that part of the story is the easy way out, but that what was happening at the time was that Marsh was called upon to decide whether he would be loyal to his wife or loyal to a church administrator. I asked the class if anybody had had a similar experience. Had they ever had an experience where they were called upon to decide between a church administrator, such as a bishop or state president, and their spouse or family member. Nobody volunteered. I said my concern was that this story is used to teach unconditional loyalty to the church over anything and everything else, including family members. Our teacher asked if I could see how pride played a part. I said I wasn't sure it was pride, but a situation of conflicting loyalties, and repeated that this story is used to teach unconditional loyalty to the church over anything and everything else, including family members. Our teacher said that we don't teach unconditional loyalty to church leaders. <clears throat> well, other than this story and many other quotes that I could bring up, but I'm not going to right now. But this is what she said. Our teacher said that we don't teach unconditional loyalty to church leaders, but that it is also taught that we have the right and the responsibility to obtain a witness of the Holy Ghost that what we are taught by church leaders is true. I had to respond, and I said that I know we say that all the time in the church, but in reality, what do we say if a person does pray about what a church leader teaches and gets a different answer? As if on cue, a sister from the back row piped up and said in a loud voice, Then you need to keep on praying. Exactly, I said, turning back to the teacher and folding my arms across my chest, which means that we do, in fact, teach unconditional loyalty to our church leaders. At this point, another class member close by grinned at me, whispered, troublemaker, and said to the class that we have to be careful about giving unquestioning loyalty to what church leaders say, and that the Mountain Meadows Massacre is a good example of why we should not. At this point, my friend was quick to include in his comment that Brigham Young was not at fault here and that we know that the Lord will not allow the prophet of the church to lead us astray. I didn't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, so I said nothing about the last comment. I just appreciated the fact that he gave me some cover by bringing up the classic example, Mountain Meadows Massacre, of how bad things can happen by giving unquestioning loyalty to the directives of church leaders, political leaders, or anybody else. The second lesson that is being taught in this story, is that there is no good reason to leave the LDS church. There are only stupid reasons. Therefore, if you leave the church, you must be stupid. This is why the story about milk strippings is told over and over and over again. And there's a companion story about a fellow named Simon's Rider, which everybody in the church has heard too. Simon's Rider, whose name was spelled with a Y, ends up having a revelation about him received by Joseph Smith in which his name is misspelled. 
The story goes that Simon's writer, being upset because his name was misspelled in a revelation, felt the church could not be true and therefore left the church and became an enemy of the church. These two stories are told over and over again to illustrate that there are no good reasons to leave the church. Only silly reasons and only stupid reasons and only stupid people would leave the church for such ridiculous reasons. But by comparison, here's something else that's very interesting. Every member of the LDS Church knows about the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. They know it's Oliver Cowdery, they know it's David Whitmer, and they know it's Martin Harris. Most members of the church also know that all three of the witnesses left the church at some point, but that they never denied their testimony of the Book of Mormon. So what everybody knows in the LDS Church, because it's said over and over, is that all three of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon left the church. But what is never talked about in church is why they left the church. Why did Oliver Cowdery leave the church? Well, there were probably a number of reasons. One of them had to do with Fanny Alger and the affair that Joseph Smith had with her and the fact that Oliver Cowdery found out about it and called it, in his words, a nasty little scrape. That's one of the things he was very upset about and one of the reasons that he left the church. Why did David Whitmer leave the church? David Whitmer left the church because he felt that Sidney Rigdon was being too much of an influence over Joseph Smith in the priesthood offices being created in the church. He really didn't like the office of high priest in the church. He saw no biblical basis for that. And he also had trouble reconciling the fact that Joseph Smith began talking about the Melchizedek priesthood in 1833 and 34 and 35, and then started talking about how it was restored by Peter, James, and John in 1829. In one of his writings, David Whitmer, who was present during the earliest phases of Mormonism, who was present in 1829, and so on, up through the 1830s, said the first time Joseph Smith ever mentioned anything about the Melchizedek priesthood and receiving it from Peter, James, and John wasn't until 1833 or 1834. He had never heard anything about it from 1829 on. And this is one of the reasons that some people think that Joseph Smith's story about Peter, James, and John restoring the Melchizedek priesthood was created in the 1830s and then backdated to 1829. What about Emma Smith, Joseph Smith's wife, and perhaps I should say his first wife? How many members of the LDS Church actually know that she did not go west with the saints? Some might have heard of it, but odds are they didn't hear about it in church, in church talks, in conference talks, or in lessons being taught from church manuals. I expect that most people listening to this podcast know she did not go west. The big dividing issue with her and Joseph and her and Brigham was plural marriage. But in the church, it is not talked about. If on occasion it does get mentioned, perhaps by somebody in the class, there's a pushback on polygamy. Well, she was cut off because she could not accept polygamy as being from God. But then what about Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Max Smith? She's the mother of the prophet. How many Mormons know that she didn't go west either? How many Mormons know that she stayed back east? It is not talked about. We have radio silence on huge swaths of church history. And these are just a few, for example. Lucy Max Smith wrote and published a book about her son Joseph Smith, his early years up to his being a prophet. She was there. She was a witness. She knew Joseph Smith better than anybody else. This book became popular in Utah until Brigham Young came down on it like buzzards on a gut wagon 
and demanded an order that all members destroy their copies. There was something about this book that Brigham Young did not like. And it's a bit up in the air as to what it is that he didn't like because he never said exactly. All we know is that he ordered that all copies be destroyed and the time would come when an official version would be written. That would be acceptable to Brigham Young and acceptable to the saints. So from Brigham Young's point of view, Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph's own mother, didn't know Joseph Smith well enough to write his story. No, that could only be done by Brigham Young or others at his direction. Another thing about the Thomas B. Marsh story with the milk strippings is that in church the story is always framed this way. Thomas B. Marsh would leave the church over something as petty as milk strippings. It is never framed from the opposite perspective, which is this. Joseph Smith would excommunicate someone for something as petty as milk strippings. Thinking of it that way also helps us to understand that there was probably a lot more going on than milk strippings if milk strippings were going on at all. The main thing had to do with Thomas B. Marsh signing an affidavit as to what the Mormons were doing to the non-Mormons in Missouri. So going back to the evidence, it is a curious thing that nobody mentioned at the time, 1838 and 1839, nobody mentioned at the time how petty Thomas Marsh's alleged reasons for falling out with the church were when it would have been useful to discredit him. In other words, why is it that it takes 18 years for the story to surface about Thomas B. Marsh when if it were true and it actually happened and there were so many witnesses because it had been up through such a long appellate process, why didn't this story surface at the time? Why do we have nobody at the time of 1838 and 39 saying this is why Thomas B. Marsh left the church? It would have been so much more useful then to discredit him. But perhaps a very important lesson that we can take from this story and take to heart and consider is that it teaches us that leaders in the LDS church can make huge mistakes even if that leader is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. They are not perfect by any means. They can make huge errors. And perhaps that's something to keep in mind when we think about the current president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Russell M. Nelson, and the story that he told in January of 2016, in which he claimed that the November policy preventing children of gay parents from receiving blessings, baptism, and priesthood ordination was the result of a revelation from God. If Thomas B. Marsh, as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, can make a huge error in September of 1838, then perhaps we can understand that the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Russell M. Nelson, can also make a huge error in January of 2016. Testing 1, 2, 3. Testing 1, 2, 3. After I was done recording the episode, some new information came to my attention, which I think that I need to include in the interest of fairness and completeness of this subject. The new information that's come into my hands is a letter written by Thomas B. Marsh to Heber C. Kimball on May 5, 1857. This is a letter that was written by Thomas B. Marsh to Heber C. Kimball before Thomas B. Marsh made his trip to Salt Lake City and before he made the comments to the saints gathered there and before Brigham Young made his comments in response to Thomas B. Marsh's comments. At any rate, Thomas B. Marsh did not just show up out of the blue. He wrote a letter to announce his coming and what he hoped to accomplish when he arrived there. He wrote the letter when he was in the Nebraska Territory, specifically Florence, Douglas County, Nebraska Territory, May 5, 1857. He says a number of things in this letter to Heber C. Kimball. But the main part that is important to focus on is the middle part, where he says, quote, I have met with G. W. Harris 
and reconciliation has taken place with us. And when that was accomplished, I was so overjoyed that I was constrained to say in my heart, Truly, this is an evidence that the Lord loves me after all my rebellion and my sins. That's the end of the quote. So in this letter, Thomas B. Marsh does make reference to having met with G.W. Harris, who is almost certainly George W. Harris, whose wife, Lucinda Harris, is the one that Thomas B. Marsh's wife, Elizabeth Marsh, had the problem with over the milk strippings back in 1838. Again, this is written in 1857. This is potential evidence that something did happen involving milk strippings between Elizabeth Marsh and Lucinda Harris. In fact, the implication seems so obvious to some editors that in reproductions of this letter, editors have included a bracketed statement in the middle of the sentence, which says this, I have met with G. George is included in the brackets, G. W. Harris is in the original, George is included in the brackets, and reconciliation has taken place with us. Now, this bracketed comment appears in many online versions of this letter. This reconciliation has reference to the disagreement over the strippings. The case involved Elizabeth Marsh and Lucinda Morgan Harris, wife of George W. Harris. End of brackets, continuing the original letter, and when that was accomplished, I was so overjoyed that I was constrained to say in my heart, truly, this is an evidence that the Lord loves me after all my rebellions and my sins. It's very important to point out the brackets, because the person who brought this to my attention thought that the bracketed part of the letter was actually part of the original letter when it was, in fact, an editor's edition. So as I say, the original letter, without the bracketing, I have met with G.W. Harris and reconciliation has taken place with us. So there was something that had happened between Thomas B. Mars and G.W. Harris, almost certainly George W. Harris, over which reconciliation took place. Now, whether that was the milk strippings incident is unaddressed in the letter. It's not mentioned at all in the letter. But something obviously did happen over which Thomas B. Marsh felt that reconciliation needed to take place between the two of them. And it's obvious from the letter that when that reconciliation had taken place between the two of them, Thomas B. Marsh was overjoyed. So this is potential evidence that needs to be addressed that something did happen and possibly the milk strippings episode did happen. The danger, however, is in looking at this to say that because Thomas B. Marsh mentioned a reconciliation with G.W. Harris in 1857, that that necessarily means that the milk strippings incident did take place, and further, that it means that every single detail given by George A. Smith in his address the prior year, 1856, is absolutely correct. And especially we have to be concerned about that when we already know that George A. Smith mentions that appeal was taken to the High Council in Far West. We have the minutes of the High Council in Far West, and they mention nothing about any kind of appeal or case involving these parties or milk strippings. But once again, in order to try to get as best as we can to the truth of what really happened, it's important to include this piece of evidence. After I read this letter, I went ahead and I did some additional research into the subject. And what I stumbled upon was very surprising to me. Let me share it with you. To the extent that this milk strippings incident really did happen, and to the extent that it happened the way that George A. Smith reported it, as happening 18 years later. It has always seemed to me a remarkable thing 
that in September of 1838, in the middle of the Missouri War between the Mormons and the non-Mormons, that an incident involving milk strippings between two sisters would be thought of such importance as to consume the time of church leaders in the High Council and in the First Presidency. I have told numerous people that there has to be something going on, in this case, more than milk strippings. What is the subtext? There's something a lot more important going on than just milk strippings. And it was as I was doing the additional research that I think I may have stumbled upon the rest of the story. A number of years ago, Todd Compton wrote a book called In Sacred Loneliness, in which he details, to the best of his ability, the lives and circumstances of each and every one of Joseph Smith's polygamous wives. His first wife was Emma, of course. Todd Compton and many others consider Fanny Alger to be Joseph Smith's second wife. But what surprised me was Todd Compton's listing of Joseph Smith's third wife, because the woman he lists as Joseph Smith's third wife is none other than Lucinda Harris. And the thing that surprised me more than that is that according to Todd Compton, Joseph Smith and Lucinda Harris were most probably married in 1838, the very same year of this milk strippings incident. Although most historians agree that Joseph Smith was married to Lucinda Harris, there is not agreement as to when exactly this happened. The evidence is sketchy. Some speculation is required. However, Todd Compton, no small scholar when it comes to these things, believes that it occurred in 1838. Compton notes the following evidence. She, Lucinda Harris, is the third woman on Andrew Jensen's 1887 list of Smith's plural wives. Todd Compton writes that Sarah Pratt, Sarah Pratt is the wife of Apostle Orson Pratt. Sarah Pratt reported that while in Nauvoo, Lucinda Harris had admitted a long-standing relationship with Smith. Now, Todd Compton admits and recognizes that this statement by Sarah Pratt is antagonistic, third-hand, and late. And yet, it is some evidence as to when Joseph Smith married Lucinda Harris. Joseph Smith fled from Kirtland, Ohio in early 1838. He arrived in Far West in March of 1838. Guess whose house he stayed in for two months until he could find a house of his own. If you guess the house of Lucinda Harris and George W. Harris, you go to the head of the class. According to Joseph Smith's diary, quote, On the 14th of March, 1838, as we were about entering Far West, many of the brethren came out to meet us who also with open arms welcomed us to their bosoms. We were immediately received under the hospitable roof of Brother George W. Harris, who treated us with all possible kindness, and we refreshed ourselves with much satisfaction after our long and tedious journey." Unquote. The Smiths stayed with the Harrises for two months. It is based upon this that Todd Compton believes the marriage between Joseph Smith and Lucinda Smith occurred around 1838 when Joseph Smith was living with Lucinda and her husband. This would, of course, have been one of Joseph Smith's polyandrous marriages because Lucinda was already married to George W. Smith, and regardless of when it happened, it was polyandrous because Lucinda and her husband were together until 1853, long after Joseph Smith had died. 
So if this speculation is correct, that at the time of the milk strippings incident in September of 1838, Joseph Smith was already married secretly and polyandrously to Lucinda Harris, this entire incident takes on a whole new color. Obviously, Joseph Smith and Lucinda Harris would have been aware that they were married. The question then arises whether Thomas B. Marsh knew that they were married. He was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, but that does not mean that he would necessarily have been in on the secret marriage. In fact, my inclination is to think that Thomas B. Marsh did not know about the polygamous marriage with Joseph Smith and Lucinda Harris, or with Joseph Smith and Fanny Alger. Because if Thomas B. Marsh had known about the plural marriage of Joseph Smith to Lucinda Harris, or any plural marriage going on, it is likely that he would have included it in his October 24, 1838 affidavit, in which he set forth the reasons that he was disassociating himself from the church. So think about this now. Here's Thomas B. Marsh, who is standing by his wife in this dispute that his wife, Elizabeth Marsh, is having with Lucinda Harris, quite likely a secret plural wife of Joseph Smith. Thomas B. Marsh thinks that his wife has been done wrong, and he appeals the decision up to the First Presidency. Who's in the First Presidency? Well, the president of the First Presidency is Joseph Smith. So really what's going on, if all of this is correct, is that Thomas B. Marsh is backing his wife against the wife of Joseph Smith. Except that Joseph Smith can't tell anybody that Lucinda Harris is his wife because it's supposed to be a secret. When looked at from this perspective, it is quite possible that Thomas B. Marsh was walking into a propeller blade and didn't even know it. And that, listeners, is the rest of the story. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.